founders tend to take on far too much on their own shoulders and delay what they should be doing really quickly is build a team, raise capital, you know, hit it. (laughs) If you're going to do it, don't do it halfway. Like, shoot for the stars. Hello, I'm Michael Hainsworth. The CIBC Innovation Banking Podcast explores the world of startups, growth stage companies, and late stage companies that have made a big splash in their industries around the world. Stephanie LaPierre knows data is more than just the new oil. It's beyond a fuel for growth, it's the cause of it. As the founder and CEO of Tealbook, LaPierre has managed to raise more than $73 million, and much of it during a pandemic. Just as COVID-19 was breaking down supply chains, Tealbook was building up its ability to connect buyers with suppliers in a whole new way, using artificial intelligence machine learning algorithms and a will to win. But how did Tealbook accelerate its fundraising while pivoting to tackle the greatest health crisis in 100 years? To understand that, I first needed to understand how the company and LaPierre work. So I asked Stephanie to explain the business like she would have to her parents. So our customers are enterprises typically that have thousands or ten thousands or hundreds of thousands of relationship with suppliers. These are companies that would sell products and services and are really essential, right, for an organization to operate. And the challenge is that there's a lot of information about these suppliers that need to be collected and maintained and gathered for various reasons. A lot is compliance-related or just even understanding who you do business with so that you can leverage them more effectively. And traditionally, the information about those suppliers have been collected through really manual efforts and, and a lot of implementations of software that have a portal that allows the suppliers to put in information in a portal. And the complexity of those enterprises is that there's more and more software collecting various portion of information on these suppliers. But now imagine, right, you've got tens or hundreds of thousands of suppliers operating globally. You've got multiple requirements across all of these providers and multiple software that are collecting different information. And the world is changing so fast that companies are looking for an easier way to access all of the information about the suppliers that they do business with. And so our technology has leveraged the fact that there's now web, right? And there's technologies like natural language processing, there's machine learning, There's cloud technologies that allow us to go out and find information on every B2B supplier, all of these suppliers in the world and the millions, and we're able to feed that information to the enterprise so that they have instant visibility and better data across 100% of the suppliers that they do business with. And because we collect so much information across so many different data sources, it also allows them to expand to know other suppliers that are most similar that they should be potentially considering or be aware of. And that could be for different initiatives. It could be because they're looking to enter new countries. Maybe they're relocating their supply chain from Asia to North America. Maybe they're looking to introduce competition to drive better pricing so that they can achieve better savings. They may be looking for companies that are sustainable or small or diverse. And so there's a lot of different needs for this data. And today, no one has had the 
opportunity to use technology the way we are to be able to collect this information and feed it in a at a speed at a scale and with the mechanism to make that data better over time. So our data over time becomes more insightful, becomes more predictive. So it really creates the intelligence of the enterprise to leverage, you know, these thousands and thousands of relationships globally to operate better. Now, what was it that led you to create Tealbook then in the first place? I I can't imagine any teenager wakes up one morning and decides in the future they're (laughs) going to create technology that gives a consolidated, enhanced view on data. I think it came down to, in my nature, I always want to fix things. I'm always looking at opportunities to improve. And so maybe I should have been an engineer or, or, you know, but I'm always looking for fixing things. I'm definitely an entrepreneur at heart. I've always been, and I've always known I would be an entrepreneur. And I started consulting business 15 years ago. And that consulting business put me in the forefront of the problem. Initially, that company was focused on helping large organization improve access to innovation through suppliers to then start building what was called strategic sourcing, which was adding more strategic value to the procurement process. And then a lot of my clients start um, engaging my consulting firm where companies were raising a lot of money and they needed to spend really fast to scale the entire infrastructure, typically to launch a first commercial product. And so procurement was not so much about savings. It was about speed, about access to innovation, enablement of people, transparency for finance to know that they're they're spending their money really fast, but also really intelligently with the right suppliers and leveraging the right relationship without putting the organization at risk. So that's what put me in the forefront of the problem because no matter if I was working with large organizations that were more quote-unquote sophisticated to these small companies where we had a clean slate of building something that was truly strategic and valuable to the organization, we kept running into the same problem. And I saw this as not being a people problem or even a process. A lot of time it's over-processed or even a software problem because there's so many software and the software are good. It's not the issue, but I saw it as a data problem. If we don't have the opportunity to collect information faster and connect the dots really quickly so that the organization has a full picture of the information that they need, we can actually create agility and we can create transparency and speed and and then help the organization achieve its corporate objectives much, much faster. But the complexity of what I saw is that the architecture that existed was full friction, a lot of duplication, a lot of manual effort, a lot of lack of good information didn't allow you to build a sound strategy. It didn't allow people to execute fast enough. It didn't enable this procurement, this buy-side function to add more strategic value to the organization. So often seen sort of more like a bottleneck and something, a process that people had to go through that they didn't particularly like. Because at the end of the day, the employees want to get their job done as fast as possible, get to the outcome with the best possible partners. And if there's a lot of friction in that process, you know, it can be frustrating and and frankly will delay revenue. It could increase risk to the organization and things like that. You've said that you've always been an entrepreneur. The entrepreneurs I speak to always seem to say that. Why is it that you think you've always been an entrepreneur? What was it that made you who you are? (laughs) First, I think I come from a family of entrepreneurs. So I grew up seeing my grandmother take over Pepsi when her my grandfather passed away and she was fairly young. She had three kids, decided that she was going to run the business. 
And so that was pretty inspiring as a young girl to see my grandmother taking on, you know, the bottling and distribution of Pepsi in Quebec. And my mother on the other side is also very entrepreneurial, always have owned businesses, reinvented herself so many times and, and uh, has always sort of been in control of her own faith. And then I look at all my friends from high school. I, I'm from Quebec and there's a lot of entrepreneurial people. And just by nature, I think all of my friends became entrepreneurs. Even if they're lawyers, they have their own law firm. If they're a real estate agent, they, they are basically running their own businesses. A lot of people came from entrepreneurial backgrounds. So I think for me, it was a way of life. I want to have more control over my future. So from a very young age, I knew I wanted to have a business. I didn't know what that was going to look like, but I knew that was going to be my path. And when I was 18, I started a, a business with two guys in Quebec and it was, we bought a book of talent artists and we started doing corporate events for companies. And so That was my first um, opportunity to really build something of my own. I ended up selling that company and then ended up going to teach skiing, went to university, hoping to find my partners at university. I think I was always looking for what's going to be that idea. Who, are, who am I going to build a business with? But in any opportunity that I've had, I've always looked at a way to spin that into a business. And so at some point, you know, I had to make a decision, okay, I've got to start a business that probably has low risk at the time. And that was my consulting business that I started. I thought, you know, if I can build this successfully, and that's what put me in the forefront of a problem that I frankly tried to kill for nine years because having three kids, having a successful consulting business, I didn't need to build Teal Book. It was not out of necessity, but the problem was always so real and in front of me. And I thought if this vision I have existed, it would solve problems for every single customer that I worked. Uh, and that was hundreds of companies. And so nobody was looking at the problem that way. Everybody was trying to solve it through software and through portal solutions. And I became really convinced that if we could have a data platform that was agnostic of all these solutions, then we could connect the dots. We could give that kind of visibility. We would actually make the investment in those software better because when you buy software, it's typically assumed that you're getting the ROI, but that's assuming that the data and the software is good. If the software and the data is not good, you're going to have subpar outcomes. And so if we can make that investment, you know, even better, then we can actually change the architecture of the future. And that felt really exciting. And so, you know, that's what drove me. But um, I do think it's part of your DNA, the, the risk tolerance, the resiliency, the passion for solving a problem has to be so real because it's hard. This journey is really, really hard. And if you don't fundamentally believe in what you're building, I mean, it's so it's, it would be very easy to be discouraged or, or give up. Well, tell me about that that hard journey. The Globe and Mail cites as you landing $50 million in funding. The reason behind that was a, quote, hustle and a will to win. <laughs> Being a hustler is a unique skill, though. What is the hardest lesson you had to learn about that skill set? I don't think you learn it. I think it's – I think you're born with it. And it's 64.5 million Canadians. So just, it's 50 million US, right? Um, I want to correct that because I think it makes a big difference. But I, it's never accepting. Like I, I've never accepted that things would fail or that's just the way it is. And I think you can change things. There's a lot of moments in my journey that it would have been easy to give up. I had someone that came in, we're looking to potentially have him as a COO 
And he said, if I was the CEO of the company, I would just let it ride, focus on, you know, this one use case in the software and try to maximize the value of that. And I looked at him and I said, that's why you're not the CEO, right? So because the vision is so big, but not everybody understands the path. And I didn't understand necessarily the path either, but my vision was very real. And so, yeah, I think it's not accepting just the facts and, and this is how it is. It's actually always challenging how things are being done so that you can find a path forward. And it's been true through the entire journey. It's been not accepting to run out of money, not accepting that the market is going on a different route, not accepting, you know, that someone can't do the work, right? It's making the changes that you need at the speed that you need them and always listening to opportunities. I've been said before that I listen to too much feedback. I love feedback. I listen to people. It doesn't mean that I take all the feedback and I, I internalize it and make them my own decisions, but it allows me to get perspective and it allows me to understand that the things that are more important that keeps getting repeated very quickly, kind of analyze it and then make my own decisions based on that. But I think it's really important to listen and take feedback and grab these small opportunities that you feel are right and follow your instincts. That's one thing maybe at the beginning, I didn't have as much confidence, but over time, just over and over, you know, validating that my instincts are right. I've got a really good spidey sense. And so I can now lean harder on that because I have now more confidence that I am right most of the time, (laughs) not all the time, but most of the time. And I don't mind a different perspective on it and I'm able to shift, but typically my spidey sense is right. And now I've gained more confidence and more credibility to be able to lean harder on those to, to create change. Ernst & Young reports 72% of the 200 supply chain executives it surveyed said the pandemic has had a net negative effect on their company. For the 1 in 10 reporting a net positive, most cited increased customer demand and bringing new products to market. Regardless, of all companies continued to invest in technology through the pandemic. Lapierre saw this at Teal Book and pivoted. For us, it was, and I'm saying this lightly because it's been disruptive for so many businesses, but we've been advocating that data is the core pillar for digital transformation. We've been advocating that the big fat lie is that software will fix data. And so that story we're already telling before COVID and the market was was really starting to come our way because they had implemented these multi-million dollar large enterprise solutions that were not giving them better quality data. And so suddenly you saw a market kind of feeling a bit duped by what they bought still value in the software, but the quality of the data that they need to operate and make better decision did not exist. And a lot of our customers believe that you could not have true enablement and digital transformation success without good data. So the market was listening, and that was a, a, a reposition that we've done just before COVID. But when COVID hit, it suddenly raised to everyone that software does not fix data because no one could have access to the information that they need at the speed and scale that was required in order to ensure business continuity or secure PPEs or secure sources that, you know, would enable you to shift your production as fast as possible in a very competitive environment, right? Everyone was looking to secure the same things. And so suddenly I think it raised awareness, not just for the procurement or supply chain, but for the executive level. Like, where's this information? Like how many suppliers do we have in China? If you don't have answers to that, right? Uh, Where do we source, 
this raw material from that's now you know, super expensive? How do we get other sources of suppliers that can en- enable us to reduce pricing? Like, I mean, all the questions were raised and, and if these functions were not able to deliver, then we're at, you know, there was a huge gap. And so suddenly data became really important and, and we were able to respond. We had just raised our seed extension. We were just starting to build our go-to-market team. And when COVID hit, one of our account directors that we had recently hired suggested that we offer to the market supplier lists for any organizations that were disrupted by COVID. And because we've seeded all this supplier network and have so much information and we had built algorithms that enabled us to understand what makes a supplier similar or not to one another, and it this powered a search engine, we're able to very quickly provide supplier lists for any organizations that it was for PPEs or raw material or alternative suppliers that were local, et cetera. So that grew our pipeline, like it exploded. We had 160 requests within the first couple of weeks. Then all the software providers that had promised good data couldn't deliver of what their customers need at the time. And so we also received inquiries from software providers looking to partner with us to integrate our data into their solution and our search engine so that they could deliver more value to their customers. And so it was a huge opportunity for us. We were a smaller team at the time. We had just started building our go-to-market strategy. When I look back, we were not prepared for COVID to capitalize on it. Uh, Luckily, you know, we were able to uh, accelerate raising Series A. And so we ended up raising two, three quarters ahead of schedule. And with that capital, then we started to really build out and scale the team. And that allowed us to get ready for our Series B, which was closed just before the holidays. And so, again, it's about these opportunities. Like you can choose to, and we've seen so much resiliency within COVID of businesses who could have given up, right? But they completely pivot their business to capitalize and to make sure that they survive. And some have actually done incredibly well because of that in environments that you would have not expected. And so that to me is entrepreneurship. Like, do you have the resiliency? Do you have the capacity of grabbing these opportunities or these challenges and turn them into opportunities, you know, not just to survive, but to actually, you know, build a better business potentially and be more competitive and sustainable. You said earlier, the big fat lie is that software will save your company. Isn't that the first page on your pitch deck? So it's the big fat line is that software will fix data. And so I don't think I don't think anybody would expect software to save the company, but software does not fix data. That's that was sort of the assumption that if you have a portal and you invite suppliers to a portal, they will come and put information because you are such a well-known organization. Of course, suppliers would want to do business with you and comply to your requests. But what ends up happening is that if you're an organization that has maybe 15 software, maybe 25, maybe 150, that touches the buy side. That means that for each of those software, you need suppliers to come to a portal to put information and they just don't do it. Because on the supplier side, you end up having multiple systems across all of your customers. It's so time consuming. You will go to get paid. You'll put your banking information and you'll put limited amount of information, but you're only gonna go back when it's need to be updated again, driven by wanting to get paid. (laughs) There's nothing else really that will motivate a supplier to go and update information across four or 500 different portals. It's just not sustainable. And especially if you're a small, mid-sized company that's have limited resources, it's not where you're going to focus your resources. 
And so it, create, it created a big problem where the organization that implemented these portals, if suppliers are not coming in to update the information, then they have to figure out a way to get the information. And so they, you know, they will subsidize with services, they will subsidize with people, they will buy other portals for other reasons. And so they'll build integrations between those systems. And it's always done with, with software that has subpar data. So typically what I would say to one of our customers or a prospect is even if you could connect all these software to each other in a really easy way through middleware, you're assuming that the data in those software is good and there's not enough machine learning AI you can throw on top of that to make it amazing. You may find some insight, but it won't be incredibly insightful. And that let's assume that the data is good. So from magic, if magic way that all your software has really amazing data and you're connecting them to each other then you only have visibility into what you know, which is very limited, actually. It's what you don't know or in the context of the world that is becoming as or even more important so that you're able to capitalize on you know, opportunities for innovation or for increased competitiveness or you know, trends or potential risks that you need to be aware of. So you got that early Series A funding. How did you leverage that? Because you've been quoted as saying that the biggest challenge is defining a category that never existed. How did you leverage that funding to define that category and get in front of those customers as COVID was rising? I think what we've done well is establish a lot of really strong relationship in the market and even early on, there's a lot of people that believed in this story. There's a lot of people that saw this as an opportunity that knew fundamentally that data was flawed. If we could fix, and you hear this all the time, garbage in, garbage out, portal potties. If only we could fix our master data, a true enablement won't happen until this master data is sorted out. Like there's a lot of these quotes. And so we were able to find a lot of the people that believed in the problem. And I think it's admitting that there's an actual problem is the first step. If you don't think you have a data problem, you're not going to be a customer. <laughs> but if you're admitting that not only you have a data problem, but if you had access to better data, if you could also connect all the dots and give you more visibility, it could be incredibly powerful. We're talking hundreds of millions of dollars in value for the organization. So we had to go and find the people that believed in the problem. Building relationship with influencers was key. And, and really advocating for this path forward. And so a lot of content, if you follow me on LinkedIn, you know, I've been writing on data and supply chain and procurement for quite a few years. That was one of the first advice I got as an entrepreneur, as a friend of mine in PR, she's like, just start writing. Like, pick a cadence. It could be once a week, once every two weeks, once a month, but just start developing content. It will become second nature as a French Canadian person. English is my second language. That seemed really daunting but I, as soon as I started, I started getting inspiration. And at the time when we used to fly a lot, that's what I would do. I would sit on the tarmac on, and, and, you know, and have my phone and start writing content. It could be inspired by a conversation I had or something that's happening in the market or something that I read. But it was always about producing content that enabled myself to be positioned as a thought leader in this space and then start positioning the company as the next generation, Right. And last year, Kearney published this echographic of all the sort of the future ecosystem of the e-procurement world. And they put Tailbook was the only logo in the middle of it as the supplier data foundation. And all the software that people thought we competed with, we didn't, 
were all around the circle. And that was really positioning us as being the supplier data foundation that powers the buy-side digital enterprise, that unify these systems, that optimize the supplier base, that empowers the people in the organization to move and act faster. And so not just the one thing, many, many things, but I think putting a lot of feeders in the market and building relationship early on has paid off because our space, they won't spend money on companies that are at risk. Like they, they will love the idea. They'll want to pilot something, you know, but making a commitment to a new organization, like you need to check all of the boxes, especially the size of customers that we have, which are Fortune 500 companies from a security, from a credibility, from like the uh, data governance, like we have, we had to be SOC 2 certified. We have to be GDPR certified. Like we have to meet all these infosec requirements. And from a credibility and a branding perspective, that was equally important. You brought up influencer advocacy, and I'm sure you're not talking about paying Instagram models to talk about your product. Uh, we've heard this time and time again on the podcast that if you want to get your foot in the door with, say, a Fortune 500 company, you don't have to go to the top. You just need to find who the decision makers are below the top who will influence the ultimate decision made at the top. Sounds like you followed that path. I'd say that probably not at the beginning because our relationship was more, we sell today to chief procurement officers and now CIOs. It would touch the CFO as well, but my first, the people that I used to engage in the early days were chief procurement officers that were buying into this vision. Having them advocate, having them on stage talking about our solution was really powerful because the industry was looking up to these you know, influencers. And so we took more of a top-down approach. Today, our, our account directors are going more to decision makers within the organization and then getting building more advocate across that company, really focused on what is what do they need the data for, right? So we're focused more on use cases of what the client's corporate priorities are and how we can help them. But a lot of them have heard of Tealbook, either through their CPOs or they've heard it through industry thought leaders or analysts. And uh, that definitely helps them build a business case to adopt us. But we're still very close to chief procurement officers who are influencers. That's who's on our advisory board. We're starting to do sub advisory board across VPs and, and chief procurement officers of our customers by industry, because we need them to guide us on where, you know, what are their corporate priorities? What are they looking to achieve? What are the challenges so that we're always staying on top of what's happening and ensuring that the money that we're spending is going to be invested in the places where we can add the most value to our clients, right? And so, again, it's both. But when you're starting a business, like you have to find the people that are going to be the key influencers, in my view, and get, you know, build relationship and listen and get them involved in your development process. 2021 proved to be a banner year for fundraising if your company was in the right space at the right time. The average deal size doubled, and that trend continues. Christian Lassonde of Impression Ventures tells me the valuations are high, but smart founders are playing the long game. And Stephanie LaPierre is one of them. She recently raised $40 million on top of the $10 million in debt financing from CIBC Innovation Banking. She tells me fundraising is easier than her day job, because it requires metrics that show the idea is working. And she's got them. She's got a triple threat. Fast growth talent retention, and a multi-billion dollar opportunity in a market that hasn't been disrupted until she came along. 
At the beginning, it was really, really hard because I never raised capital before. And I was not someone who had built a company and had credibility in our community. And so I had no technology background and I was I didn't have a team. So in the early days, it was really, really hard. I had landed some really big customers and even that did not give me enough to easily raise capital. And to me, it was like, what do they need? <laughs> what else do they need than landing these six customers? One was a $60 billion market cap client, right? And super invested in our success. And so it was, again, it's listening to feedback. I want to hear from investors, why would they not move forward? And, you know, some of them will be super polite and give you kind of a high level uh, answer. But the ones that were real and told me the truth are the one that helped. I remember this investor who says like, hey, Lone Ranger, like you can't do this by yourself. Like you got to have a team. And I remember at the time, like I had one, six customers. I had a, a team in Montreal that was building the technology. I had one employee <laughs> and I felt really defeated because I was like, I need the money to be able to hire the CTO and, and the commercial person in-house and, and build my team there and then bring our one of the other feedback is because we were outsourcing the technology, we're not really creating value. So it was really important that we own and build the technology in-house. We're talking very, very early days of Tailbook. And so, but I remember leaving that meeting with the investor kind of feeling defeated because it was sort of the chicken or the egg, right? If I don't raise money, I can't hire the team and how, you know. Anyway, so I left kind of feeling like, how is that going to be possible? And some magic, and there's a lot of pixie dust across this journey, but someone mentioned that they knew a CTO that was in a company that had recently been acquired. So there was possibility that he would be interested. He came from our world. I'd worked at Ariba, I'd worked at Google and could come with a team and capital. And so that's what ended up happening. My first CTO decided to join, wrote a check, brought in the CEO of the previous company who joined as a COO, and we were able to secure our, our first seed investment. And so that was the first institutional money that we secured. And then from that point on, it was all proof points. Like what validation do we have in the market? Um, and series A, series B, because now we have data, right? So it's not about me necessarily. Of course, people, investors have to have the confidence that the vision is real. There's a real market opportunity. The We're attaching ourselves to a market that's growing really, really fast. All these things are true. But now it's all about the proof points and the data. So we had to hit certain metrics and we had, you know, above average KPIs across the board. And so th that's when investors get really excited. An investor told me once that investors will get on a plane without even knowing anything about the business if they see the KPIs. And so us having, you know, growth over 300%, our net retention 168%, our sales cycle reduced, like all these proof points that we had built over the past year got investors really excited and we ended up getting it basically a preemptive term sheet ahead of uh, our process. So here's an awkward question. What's the biggest mistake you made in the early days when it came to approaching funding that you don't want any other startup entrepreneur to make? I didn't understand. Like I just did it. And <laughs> so part of my strength is I do it, but I've wasted a lot of time meeting investors that were at the wrong stage that didn't have fun at the right life cycle, didn't have a thesis in my space. And so I learned a lot from it, but I, I could have saved hundreds of hours of my time and their time by focusing on investors that were 
appropriate for my space at the right stage with the right fund that could add value to my business that would understand my business and what I'm trying to achieve. And so I guess I kissed a lot of frog to get there and it worked out for me. But if you can be a bit more strategic about who you go after, learn the landscape, know the funds, know their thesis, trying to find analogy of investment that they would have made so that you can make reference to some of those investments, because if they can see parallel and then look from their, their eyes, what do you not have today? Like from a risk profile for me was that I was a woman. I don't think it's about the gender. I think a lot of women will tend to carry a lot more risk on their shoulders and won't build a team fast enough or raise capital fast enough. And so suddenly, you know, you're going to put a few million dollars in an individual who's potentially high risk. I've got three kids. Like what if one of my kids gets sick? What does she have that she can actually take my millions of dollars and multiply that 10 times or more? And so I looked from their lens and saw, okay, I need to de-risk myself. And that was building the team, bring the technology in-house, right? Bringing advisors, all of that network that I've surrounded myself was to de-risk the fact that the company did not just rely on me. And I had complemented my skill set so that we could actually execute. Because if there's four women coming to pitch me on investing in them and they have a solid idea, even if it's all not figured out, but they all have complementary skill set, they're all super excited and motivated, and I can see that there's a path for them to be successful, that gives me a lot of confidence. But I think the gender thing often is, again, and I mentor a lot of women founders, they just tend to take on far too much on their own shoulders and delay what they should be doing really quickly is build a team, raise capital, you know, hit hit it. <laughs> if you're going to do it, don't do it halfway. Like, shoot for the stars. On the topic of capital, you pivoted from venture capital and shaving off pieces of the company in exchange for funds to debt financing. At what point do you pivot from VC to debt? So we always have taken debt as part of our rounds. It's a nice sort of added cushion in case things don't necessarily go as planned. Because it may be that if you're building a product, you may have a lot of assumption of how things are going to go, and it may not go exactly the way you thought of. And if you need a bit more time to validate so that you can have the right proof points to go back to investing, you may want to have that cushion. You don't want to use debt financing as a way to kind of you know, get you out of a bad situation. You really want to have it as a way to increase the value of the organization if needed, if you need a little bit more time. That's always how I saw it. So in the first uh, seed extension, we ended up taking debt financing, building the relationship with the banks. On Series A, we took a little bit more. And so by the time we raised Series B, like we were able to leverage the fact that we have now built relationship. We have been fiscally responsible. We are showing some really strong proof points and having the right VCs also helped, right? Bridge that relationship with the banks. But I just think it's a really good opportunity when you have money in the bank. It just gives you in case you need that extra cushion. It's there. It's hard to get that financing later on. Since in 2021, you saw your growth triple while expanding into new sectors like tech, real estate, consumer packaged goods. How do you maintain such a breakneck growth while maintaining your existing customer base? How do you keep your eye on the ball? Our data is quite industry agnostic and the use cases are very similar. And so for us, it doesn't really matter which industry or sector we go into. There's virality within a sector 
And the data becomes more interesting over time as we kind of have overlap of suppliers having multiple customers. We don't share that data with clients, but our profile become more insightful. The relevance score becomes better. We have insights and benchmark that we can start extracting, but we can land a new customers in mining or retail or technology, and we can turn the light onto their data right away. And so if our clients are looking, for example, how many of their suppliers are small and diverse, that means they're certified, women-owned, veteran-owned, African-American-owned, et cetera, If they have a certification today, our clients would have to collect this through a portal and then validate the data with their master data. It's quite a manual process and not all suppliers will do it. With Tealbook, once you activate your master data, we'll give a company as, as large as a Fortune 100 companies, we have hundreds of thousands of suppliers, a really accurate report on who they do business with that small and diverse, looking at 100% of their suppliers. So typically the uplift is 20 to 300% more diverse spend then we can start looking at suppliers that are potentially small and diverse. So the use case, the drivers for the use case are different. If I'm in higher education, I get funding, federal funding based on that data. If I am in pharma, for example, and I do hospital contracts, I'm going to need to report that to the government. Or if I get federal grants, if I'm in technology, it may just be a driver because my shareholders are looking for this data. My consumers are looking for this data. Right. So it may be more from a competitiveness perspective or to make sure that I have a pipeline of innovation. So the drivers across sectors are different, but the use cases are very similar. So it's a bit of a luxury for us to have started in pharma biotech where that was my background, really built up momentum there, learn from those clients before expanding into new sectors. But this past year, we've opened, I think it's 12 or 14 new sectors. Right. But the the problem, of course, is that when you go from the startup stage into that growth stage, the risk is stumbling as you accelerate your growth. Um, That happens with many startups as they try to shift from one speed to the next gear up, as it were. How do you avoid that that stumble? (laughs) Hire really, really smart people. Um, Build technology that scale. And so not get caught into customization and high service type of businesses. I mean, it works for some businesses. For us, it was really important to understand what we're building, what was repeatable and scalable. And last year when we raised Series A, once we got that capital, those three things that were really important to our business, could we continue this velocity of the market coming our way and looking for the solution and capitalize on that? Could we build to scale? I hired in Q1 seven new executives that had startup growth experience across all of the functions so that we brought people that knew what they were doing and could hit the ground running. And then the other piece is, could we build predictability? Could we become predictable in our business? You know, if we can build predictability, not only it allows us to operate effectively, but also gives confidence to our team of where we can spend money and get the best outcome. It also gives confidence to investment community. If we're going to say we're going to hit X revenue by next year, we get credit, right? And their valuation, they're not looking at the ARR of today. They're looking at, you know, next year's ARR and they're counting that in our valuation and we better deliver. And so the more predictability you show quarter over quarter, the more confidence investors are going to give you credit for that forward. And that's the same if we, you know, decide to go public, the public market, we don't necessarily need to get to hundred million ARR, but if we show that quarter over quarter, we were predictable and we came within a certain percentage of our forecast it's much easier to go to the public market and say, hey, we know we're going to achieve 100 million ARR by 2026. 
oh, this sounds like we've got an opportunity for part two of this conversation, when, not if, you IPO. (laughs) (laughs) Stephanie, thank you so much for your time and insight. This has been great. Thank you for having me. The years ahead are looking bright for Teal Book, thanks to a steady hand on the tiller and that will to win. By building a relationship on the debt side of her financing early, it's added credibility to the books at Teal Book and gives the company extra runway to meet its KPIs. Continuing to provide the transparency investors and customers demand will be key, as will maintaining that influencer advocacy. After all, the best salespeople for your product are its customers. I'm Michael Hainsworth. Thanks for listening. <laughs>